This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Uh, the Irish poet Oscar Wilde once wrote, ultimately the bond of all companionship, whether in marriage or in friendship, is conversation. Nonetheless, the Anglo-Irish playwright George Bernard Shaw once wrote, the greatest problem in communication is the illusion it has taken place. So we also now learn why many friendships and marriage struggle. Communication is actually very hard to happen. So we know two things. We all seek genuine communication and conversation. Secondly, we rarely encounter it. What then of theology? How are we as creatures to converse about God? More importantly, how are we to converse with God? Now, the great 20th century apologist, Bishop Fulton Sheen, once said that the religions and philosophies of the world <coughs> display the best and at times the worst of humanity's search for God. But what makes Christianity unique can be seen at Christmas. God becomes a little child in the arms of Mary. Christianity reverses the order because instead of man's search for God, Christianity is God's search for man. God thus initiates a whole new order of conversation. Now we're focusing this evening on St. Thomas Aquinas who lived in the middle of the 13th century from 1225 to 1274. He died when he was 49 years old. His Summa Theologiae, his summary of theology, uh, was only one among many things Thomas wrote, has over 512 questions, 200, almost 2,700 articles, about 10,000 objections and replies, Overall, about 1.8 million words. So it's a long series of volumes. Just to give you a rule of thumb, most modern novels have about 100,000 words. So this is about 20,000, or sorry, about 20 modern novels. Um, so what I want to do tonight is to give you a key to that book. I want to give you a key, by the way, that only has been slowly coming clear to me after almost 30 years of reading and teaching the Summa something hopefully that can save you a lot of time uh, and uh, as something that you can also remember and take away with you. I have to say, by the way, reading Thomas Aquinas has been one of the great joys of my life, right? Uh, Thomas has really helped me to think more clearly about the world. When I was a young man, I was loved science, I loved math, and I thought religion was rather stupid and silly and naive. Uh, and when I went to study at college, I continued that view. Until at a certain point, I began to think maybe that I was a little naive and silly, and that the world was actually a little bit bigger than what I had thought it to be. I began to realize that there was more wisdom, so to speak, in the world than my 18-year-old self had learned. Uh, and I began to see, wait a second, that there was something deeper in God's existence, something deeper in his existence in, as the son of God in Jesus Christ. Uh, eventually came back to the faith in Christ, 
couple years later, came back to faith in Christ in the Catholic Church. Uh, but throughout all my time, it was really Aquinas that was kind of my great love, because Aquinas helped me to understand that my deep search for knowledge and truth that I had as a young man was actually more fulfilled in the faith uh, than science alone could give me. So some preliminary clarifications. Many people think of Aquinas as a great philosopher, a rationalist Christian almost. So I want to say the first clarification among four I'm going to make is Aquinas and Jesus Christ. At the center of Aquinas is Jesus Christ. Aquinas, above all, is a disciple of Jesus Christ. Interestingly, his family had stuck him in a monastery, a very famous Benedictine monastery that had a lot of power and influence in his day. Put him there at five years old. He was raised there kind of in a school by the monks and uh, with the idea that he would become abbot there. Uh, he was there until he was about 18. He's kind of a rather gifted child. He had most of all the New Testament and all the Psalms memorized by the time he was 15. Um, rather precocious. Uh, but when he was 18, he ran into this young group of kind of wandering evangelical Dominicans. This was in the second generation. Dominic, St. Dominic was, you know, had just died. Uh, and he said, I'm going to leave the abbot. I'm going to leave the monastery and I'm going to join the Dominicans. Now, his family had a castle in the time in, in Aquino, uh, Thomas of Aquinas, right? Thomas Aquino. Uh, and they had a, rather, they were like, basically, if you had a castle in those days, you were lords, you were knights, you had kind of a little army police force, right? So what they did when they heard Thomas was going to do this, they went ahead and arrested their younger brother. The older brothers were not happy about this. Uh, they put him in uh, basically the castle prison for a year. Uh, during that time, not only uh, did they try to get him to agree to return to the monastery, and be the Benedictine abbot they wanted him to be. Uh, they also just wanted him to, well, just not be a Dominican, so much so that they actually sent in a prostitute uh, and at one time. But he uh, was reported to chase the prostitute out with a burning coal that he took from the fire, and he put a little cross on the door. He remained firm. They even sent in his sister, by the way, to tempt him to leave. Uh, and unfortunately, she ended up becoming a nun at the end of the conversation. So, um, so Thomas Aquinas, right, gave in a way a lot, a lot of power, a lot of influence that he would have had with his family and with the monastery to become a Dominican, uh, to become this order of preachers, a new way of preaching and following Jesus Christ, not in the monastery, but in the middle of the world, in the middle of the streets. The streets would become the monasteries in a way of the Dominicans. They launched a huge catechesis of Europe and really the world. Toward the end of Aquinas' life, when he wrote the section on the Eucharist, which became the later part of the uh, Summa Theologiae, he placed that section on an altar before the crucifix. And he basically asked and prayed whether or not Jesus Christ, his Lord, thought it was worthy of him. He had a vision where Christ spoke to him from the crucifix and said, you have written well of me, Thomas. Ask for anything, and I will give it to you. Thomas replied, in the Latin of his day, right, non nisi te. Non nisi te, Lord, domine, right? I want nothing but you. 
So when we think about Aquinas, we have to understand Aquinas is fundamentally an evangelical Catholic, an intentional follower of Jesus Christ, who sought to study Christ and make Christ known to the world. Second preliminary qualification, Aquinas and the Bible. Now, Aquinas considered the Bible as the fundamental recorded source of the revelation of Jesus Christ. As we will see, he thought all of his theology could be summarized. He, would, he called it sacra doctrinas, holy teaching, sacred doctrine. He would say that sacra doctrina and sacra pagina, the sacred page, were interchangeable. Do you want to know where, what's, where sacred doctrine is? It's the Bible. Now, it's, of course, the Bible is received by the church as uh, the meaning of it is taught by the creeds. But nonetheless, there it is. The teaching of Christ, as he will describe it as the new law, was actually the text of the New Testament. It was more than that, to be sure, just like John himself says, right? If um, one were to have write down everything that Jesus had written, it would have filled up more books than the world can hold. But nonetheless, it was recorded in Scripture. So Aquinas had a great love of the Bible. Interestingly, even though Aquinas wrote the Summa Theologiae, which is what we're looking at tonight, Aquinas never taught the Summa Theologiae. His job as a university professor of theology at the University of Paris was a master of the sacred page. He, his job was to lecture on the Bible. He gave lectures on all of St. Paul's letters, including Hebrews, which he believed to be from St. Paul. He gave lectures on Matthew, John, commentaries on Job from the Old Testament, Isaiah, the Psalms. In it, right, the fruit, the highest point of a professor of theology in the 13th century was to give commentaries on, Aquinas, on the Bible, and Thomas did that. That, in a way, was his job. He wrote the Summa Theologiae to help train other Dominicans so they could be effective preachers, hearers of confession, and uh, teachers of theology around Europe. Um, so this, uh, not only uh, that, he also wrote a catena aurea, a golden chain, where he pulled together all these quotes from the Latin fathers and the Greek fathers on every passage of, basically every passage of the gospel. Four volumes of just quotes from the fathers on the four gospels, right? So Aquinas loves the Bible. It's the most cited source in the Summa, right, far and away. Uh, uh, and interestingly, Aquinas will say, why do we need the creeds in theology? He says, because the creeds are an effective, faithful summary of the Bible. Most of us don't have the time to read the whole Bible. And if we did, we wouldn't understand the whole thing. And we often might even misread it or misinterpret it. So he says, the creeds are a sure and safe summary of the Bible. But that very way of putting it shows that the real heart of Revelation is in the Bible, and then the creeds are the faithful summary of it. So the creeds are not meant to replace the faith. Okay, third preliminary consideration, Aquinas and the church fathers. Aquinas and the early church. Aquinas loved the fathers. He saw them as authorities in the reception of divine revelation. Christ is the revelation. It's recorded in sacred scripture. But sacred scripture has to be received by the church so that it can be properly understood. And the period of the fathers was that period by which revelation in sacred scripture was received faithfully. 
in part because many early theologians misinterpreted scripture and they became the heretics. They misunderstood who Jesus Christ was. And so the early fathers of the church said, this is the faithful way of understanding Christ, of understanding scripture. Uh, he quotes Augustine more than Aristotle. He quotes Dionysius, John Damascene. He's one of the first medieval Latin theologians in the 13th century to have a, just a whole new uh, rich source of Greek fathers translated. He had Aristotle, by the way, retranslated because the old translations weren't very good. And then he had Cyril of Jerusalem and all these Greek fathers translated. His love of the fathers was so great. There was one time, uh, it's a story that was told by his uh, biographer, that as he was walking up and they began to see the whole city of Paris, um, and it was just a beautiful, fascinating thing. And the Dominicans were walking in those days. And uh, somebody next to him is kind of like, what would you uh, give for the city of Paris? And he says, Aquinas said, I'd rather have St. John Chrysostom's commentary on Matthew. Right? St. John Chrysostom is one of the great fathers and a Greek father. Uh, Leo XIII, at the end of the 19th century, when he wrote an encyclical on the study of St. Thomas, he wrote this. He said that Aquinas had such respect for the fathers, he had, quote, inherited the mind of them all. So when we think about Aquinas, right, we're not thinking about Aquinas, not Jesus Christ, or Aquinas, not the Bible, or Aquinas, not the fathers. We're really seeing Aquinas as pulling together the Bible and the fathers for our understanding. Okay, then fourthly is Aquinas and philosophy. Aquinas thought that philosophy, and specifically the philosophy of Aristotle, and also, to a certain extent, the philosophy of Plato, was really crucial for understanding revelation. Right? That if revelation is the revelation of God, his creation of man, his salvation of man in the God who becomes man in Jesus Christ, then it makes a difference what we come to know about the created order. Right, that the created order has a kind of intelligibility and a density and an integrity that we can learn about it through philosophy. There were other medieval theologians in the 13th century that said, we don't need any Aristotle, the Bible's enough. And Aquinas said, like, we're missing the Bible. If we don't have Aristotle, we won't know the Bible as well as we can. Because Aristotle helps us to also think through what does it mean to be man? Right. Paul talks about growing in the virtues. Paul speaks in first, uh, sorry, first Peter uh, two fives. Therefore, supplement your faith with virtue. Well, if we have to supplement our faith with virtue, we have to understand what virtue is. Aristotle helps us to understand virtue, not because God isn't enough, but because God's so good that He created human beings with a certain kind of nature that even people without Christ could still come to know human nature and know certain things that were true about it. So Aquinas loved philosophy as well. And he thought philosophy would help us to understand the nature of God, the nature of creation, and the nature of man. Two key points, right? Number one, the truths of the faith always correct philosophy when they, when they, um, inter when they contradict. Nonetheless, the truths of faith do not destroy philosophy. Right? We have to, in a certain sense, be able to understand the natural order in order to be able to receive the faith. Aquinas will say famously that grace does not destroy but it perfects nature. And in the same way, theology does not destroy, but it perfects philosophy. Um, fifth point I wanted to make, I don't know why I said four before, I miscounted. 
Um, that's why I ended up having to leave engineering and start theology. Um, so uh, is Aquinas in the Catholic Church? And I simply wanted to make an interesting point here. Today, we really like to think for ourselves, right? But I want to kind of say, like, most people don't show up and say, like, I want to find an authority and tell me what I should think, right? We like to think for everything for ourselves. But I want to say, in a way, having tried to think for ourselves for a long time, we realize it's also kind of hard and confusing, and it's hard to find our way. So when the church suggests that there's someone we ought to listen to, well, sometimes it's good to listen to the church. And of course, the irony is if we don't listen to the church, we just end up listening to other people, right? If we don't choose an authority, we end up having authorities chosen for us. So the church has constantly recommended the theology of Thomas Aquinas to the, form to the formation of laity and to the formation of priests. Um, Pope John Paul II, now St. John Paul II, wrote in Fetus Orazio, the church has been justified in consistently proposing St. Thomas as a master of thought and a model of the right way to do theology. A master of thought, a master of thinking about the world and a model of the right way to do theology. Vatican II taught that students for the priesthood should study the mysteries of salvation as disclosed by the Bible, as received by the fathers, and then, quote, under the guidance of St. Thomas. And there's a great story that in the Council of Trent, the great Catholic response to some of the confusing teachings that came out of the Protestant Reformation, the Council Fathers put, of course, the Bible and the creeds right on the next to the altar. And what they put next to that was Thomas' Summa Theologiae. If we want to learn about Jesus Christ, Aquinas is helpful, right? He's actually a guide that the church recommends to us. Okay, so those are our five clarifications um, to think through some of these starting points. Um, now, what I want to suggest then, what then is the key? I said there was one. What's the key to understanding the Summa Theologiae? And I want to say the key to it is what I mentioned earlier is the theme of communication, the theme of conversation. Right? Aquinas dedicates his Summa Theologiae to God's communication of himself to us in the revelation of his son, Jesus Christ, and the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's not for nothing that we entitled our book, Knowing the Love of Christ. Borrowing Paul's quote from Ephesians 3.19, that we may come to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. When we know the love of Christ, God dwells in us. When we come to know the love of Christ, we are then in a state of communication and conversation with God. Now, just take a moment. What does it mean to know? Right? There's even the biblical theme of knowing, right? which is when Adam knew his wife, she bore him a son in Genesis. And that's not merely a euphemism. Right? That is saying that knowing is an intimate covenantal relationship. Such knowledge includes love, but cannot be reduced to love because it also requires we cannot love what we do not know and we cannot know what we do not love. Thus, Aquinas' central claim is that God knows and loves us. 
just as much as Adam knew his wife and that wife, that knowledge bore life. So when God knows and loves us, right, that creates a new relationship. Aquinas thus unveils that communication becomes the central theme, not only of his summa, but of all reality, right? Communication really is love given, love received. From all eternity, God exists as love, and he communicates himself as love to himself, to his son, and to the Holy Spirit. When God creates the world, he communicates himself to his creation. In charity, God communicates himself to us in friendship. In the incarnation, God communicates himself to the world in the highest manner possible. So this communication then is God speaking in such a way that he establishes a new relationship. We think about the very word theology. It's theos logos, right? God's word, words about God. Theology, logos is speaking, communication, discourse, reason, intelligence, but it's it's a communication that establishes something new. Right? We think about this all the time. We call Jesus Christ the word of God, the logos of God, the speech of God, the communication of God. Right? He, in a way, is God communicating himself ultimately to us. So when Aquinas organizes his summa, he doesn't do it alphabetically like a dictionary or like an encyclopedia. He doesn't do it by history. He organizes the Summa around the very order of reality. So he begins with God, one and three, creation, man as being created, man's return to God through the moral life, Jesus Christ as the consummation of that return, and then the sacraments as the communication of Jesus Christ, and heaven, right? That's where we end up, in which all of creation has returned. So what I want to do now is give you a brief tour of the Summa in 10 key steps. Let's take 10 key parts of the Summa. So the first part I want to suggest is what Aquinas says in question one of the Summa, first question Summa, is the idea that theology is properly a sacred doctrine. But he uses the word sacred doctrina. Why do I say that's important? Well, Sacred doctrina, what he's going to say, it is God's communication, God's communicating the knowledge of himself to us through revelation. Doctrina in Latin means not so much what is taught, but means the activity of teaching. So unlike our word doctrine, that's kind of a noun, doctrina is a verb. Doctrina is the activity of one teaching and somebody else learning. And in other ways, you could say doctrina is nothing other than communicating. When God is doctrinaing us, right, teaching us, we are being doctrined, right? We are being taught. We are learning. So the whole idea of sacred doctrina is a communication of God to us. Now, This is important because theology then is not merely human knowledge about God, but it's God's knowledge of himself shared with us. Remember back to Fulton Sheen's little example. What's the difference between Christmas is 
all philosophies, human philosophies and human religions, all have a little bit of truth in them because they're man's search for God. But Christianity is unique because it's God's search for man. So therefore, sacred doctrina is actually God sharing his own understanding with us. Aquinas will say, quote, right, sacred doctrina treats of God as far as he is known to himself alone and communicated to others through divine revelation. Right, so that's the starting point. Aquinas says, what are we talking about with theology in the Summa? The Summa is sacred doctrina. It's holy teaching. It's really, right, holy communicating. God communicating himself to us. And that all that we communicate is really just sharing what God has already communicated. It's communicating to others. That's what Aquinas is doing in this work. Now, number two. If that number one was sacred doctrina, holy teaching, God's holy teaching. Number two is God the creator. If God exists from all eternity, God exists as the creator. He exists. We come to know his perfect existence through the imperfect existence that we encounter in the world. Aquinas, therefore, will see God as the source of all creation, knowable through creation, but nonetheless exceeding all that is found in creation. He will affirm his teaching on creation uh, is so important that when G.K. Chesterton writes a book on Aquinas, which he calls the dumb ox, one of the funny things is Aquinas was, well, number one, rather corpulent, meaning that he was largely overweight. Um, and then secondly, he was also very quiet. So um, unfortunately, in kind of seminary, uh, the other, you know, monks and Dominicans weren't always very, you know, nice to him. And so they would joke that he's the dumb ox because he can't, doesn't talk. And uh, his teacher, Albert the Great, one time said, um, at least was quoted to say, um, it may have been a little bit after the fact, but that um, I tell you, this dumb ox's bellowing will be heard throughout um, all of Europe. Uh, and of course, right here today, we are still listening uh, to this dumb ox. But in G.K. Chesterton's book, The Dumb Ox on Aquinas, he says, Aquinas should be called the doctor of the creator, not the doctor of grace, because he shows how amazing God is as the creator. And we won't fully understand God as the redeemer unless we understand him as the creator. Now, when he says this, he gives us a key idea here. And the key idea is this. All of the perfections of creatures pre-existing God. So the perfection of the strawberry, the perfection of the bunny, the perfection of all the different things somehow pre-existing God. Uh, we can think about this even in Romans 1.20, right? That the invisible nature of God is perceived in the things that God has made. Interestingly, even Einstein, right, saw that there must be an intelligent mind behind the universe. The most incomprehensible thing he wrote about the universe is that it is comprehensible. So the very comprehensibility of the universe to him was a sign that there was a mind behind the universe. Aquinas would have agreed that the comprehensibility of the universe points to a source beyond the universe, namely the perfect existence of God in whom all the perfections are present. Those perfections not only of the bunny and the strawberry, but even of the laws of physics. Why is it that when we look at stars and we think about matter, we can write it down as E equals MC squared? 
It's an equation, it's intelligible, it's understandable. Therefore, that understandability does not come from creation itself, from matter. It comes from the mind that makes things. Um, secondly, Aquinas then talks, not only does God create the world, but he holds the world in being. So God didn't create the world at the beginning of the world alone. He creates and he continues to create us right now. The fact that we're living and breathing and thinking and talking is in a way, something that God is calling into being. And so Aquinas will also talk about the God's providence is so great that he gives to creatures the dignity of being causes. And what I mean by that is God could do something, right, where um, he simply makes the tree fall down. But instead, he allows you to cut the tree down. And when you're cutting the tree down, you're genuinely acting. But at the same time, God's still at work because you wouldn't be doing anything without God's presence. And he says this, by the way, he says that when God's providence is so great that he communicates, that word again, not only his perfections to creatures, but he communicates to his creatures the fact that they also can share in his providence. So there's a non-competitive relationship between God and the creator. Okay, third point, God the Trinity. Now, God's perfect existence is so perfect that he can communicate himself to himself perfectly, such that when he communicates himself to the Son, the Son is perfect, so much so that he's God. Now, just think for a minute. Try to think about an intimate conversation you've tried to have with another person. And where you actually try to communicate in a way who you are through a series of words and gestures. You might do okay. Unfortunately, we're also a little bit blinded, so we might be somewhat, you know, pre presenting a little bit of a fake image, slightly, um, uh, you know, perverted by our own ego. But, but even just, we're just not quite able, you can't quite say everything you want to say and communicate everything you want to communicate. Because whatever we try to say or communicate is not fully equal to us. But when God tries to communicate, when he speaks his word, it's so perfect that the word that is communicated is equal to himself. So the son is equal to the father. And when they communicate their love, right, they don't create um, another person who goes off to college and makes their parents sad and all those different things, right? They communicate the Holy Spirit who remains completely with them, and again, in a non-competitive relationship, right? Too many human beings start living in the same house, eventually gets competitive, right? You're competing for food and space and air or bandwidth or whatever it is, right? But in God, you have this perfect communication with no competition. So that's the way Aquinas talks about it. He says, the procession in God, the procession of the Son and the Spirit in God is only by way of communication of the divine nature. So again, there's that word again. It's the communication of the divine nature. Uh, this communication in the eternal divinity is shared then with us in time. Not through the eternal processions, but through the two temporal, as they'll call them, missions in time. The Son is sent. God so loved the world that he sent his Son. In Galatians 4, it'll talk about God, uh, God sent his son. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts that we can cry, Abba, Father. 
God sent his son in the incarnation. He sent the spirit of his son in the, at Pentecost. Continues to send the spirit of his son in the church in the sacraments. That mission, the sending of the son, by the way, and the sending of the spirit is how we come to know about the eternal processions. We wouldn't know that God is a trinity were it not for the sending of the son, were it not for the sending of the spirit. But Aquinas, again, will talk about that. What's the purpose of the sending of the Son and the Spirit? In history is so that the Son and the Spirit can come to indwell us today. The visible mission in history is for the invisible mission now in the sacraments to the baptized so that the Son and the Spirit and the Father dwell in us. And Aquinas calls this, yes, a communication of God to us. Okay, number four, creation. Uh, right after looking at God as one and three, now we look at the creation that he created. It's interesting, Aquinas will ask a question where he says, are creatures like God? Is God like creatures? Um, and there are a lot of religions, by the way, Islam's one that says, look, there is, God is not in any way like creatures. If you think God is anything like a creature, right, then, you know, you're a, uh, an idolater. But Aquinas says it a little differently. He says this. He says, ultimately, that everything in creation imitates something in God, or else it wouldn't be. We think about this. Things are created through the word. We believe in John 1, it says, all, right, all things were created through him. Well, so that means if I make something, then what I make is an imitation of what I understand it to be. I can't make something that I don't think in my head first. So if God makes something, he has to somehow understand it first. So he says, everything then somewhat imitates God, but nothing imitates God perfectly. The only thing that imitates God perfectly is, well, the Son and the Spirit. Everything that's created imitates God, but not fully. So all things, insofar as they exist, imitate God's existence. Everything that lives, insofar as it lives, imitates God in its life. Everything that moves imitates God in its movement. But man alone has an intellectual soul that can come to know and love God. Um, so only man is made in the image and likeness of God. Aquinas thinks of knowledge and love in a way that's often more personal than we might think of it in a kind of modern scientific context. Knowing and loving a person is, again, to establish and enter into a relationship in them. So when we are made in the image and likeness of God, it's not just so that we can know facts about God, it's so we can know God. There's a psalm you may know, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, right? It's great to know the psalm, but it's even better to know the shepherd, right? That's what we're supposed to do. So to come to know and love God, to have our, to be made in the image and likeness of God means that in a certain sense, we are a mirror that is incomplete until we are reflecting light, right? In a way, we are a mirror that's incomplete until we are reflecting the very knowledge and love of God communicated to us, and we then are communicating it back to him. Okay, number five. Number five is happiness. And this is kind of interesting, because for Aquinas, all of morality is about happiness. 
Ever since Kant, we've tended to, this modern philosophy, Immanuel Kant, we've tended to separate. We think often morality is doing your duty um, even when you don't like it. You know, well, that's sometimes necessary, but that's because, well, we don't have the right likes. Genuinely to flourish as a human being, to be filled with in the image and likeness of God means that we have to become truly happy. We have to become so blessed, right, that we are fulfilled as creatures. So instead of a morality of obligation and rules that we kind of have inherited from modern philosophy or then the other, the postmodern, where we get rid of the rules, Aquinas says all morality is about happiness. It's about what will truly make you happy. And what will truly make you happy, he says, is not bodily goods, not money, not honor, because all those things are going to pass. Not even loved ones, right? You may think that if only you could find right that one girl or that one guy and get married and then post a picture on Instagram and have everyone love that picture on Instagram, right? You would be happy. But, you know, right, even we know, probably not totally, right? But think about when Jesus comes into the world and he preaches the Sermon on the Mount, he begins with blessings, right? Blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the pure in heart. That word for blessed is the same as happy. To be fully blessed means to be fully actualized as a creature. It means basically to have that image of God fully activated, not only receiving the love and knowledge of God, but reflecting it by knowing and loving God perfectly. So because of this, happiness then becomes the central theme. Interestingly, if you look at the first 26 questions of the Summa, they are all about the one God. You know what question 26 is? God's happiness. The end of the next uh, 27 to 43 is on the Trinity. 43 is the missions of the Son and the Spirit by which God communicates to us his happiness. The happiness that we need for our salvation to be happy is basically the happiness that God gives us as his creatures. Right. So in a way, right, all of the Summa is really about simply, again, God communicating his own happiness, his own blessedness to us. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in a book, The Problem of Pain, will quote George MacDonald in an interesting way. He says to a certain extent, we would really rather have a grandfather in heaven than a father in heaven. Because it turns out fa grandfathers are much more easily pleased. Right? But God isn't like a grandfather. God wants us to grow up into a fine, strong, young child of God. Right? A son or daughter of God who is incapable of being in full relationship with him immediately. Lewis will say there, he says, God has no other happiness to give than the happiness he is. We might want just to become a little bit better, but God wants to make us perfect. Right? That's really the good news. Okay, number six, virtues. Our path to happiness occurs through actions that flow from virtues. Ethics is not merely knowing the right thing to do but it's being able to do it with a willing, joyful spirit. That requires the cultivation of habits. We have to become certain kinds of things. You know, you may have, you may, they may, 
you may witness, right, in the mornings, right, the birds start chirping, right? Every morning they chirp, they're noisy, they're loud. Why? Because they have instincts that make them do that. They get up and they do it, right? Human beings are blessed not to have instincts. We have freedom, right? Which means when the sun rises, we roll around in bed. When the alarm goes off, we hit the snooze button. Almost it seems like it would be more fun to be a bird. But just the way we are, we don't act by instinct, but nor do we act simply by choice. We have to cultivate habits that allow our choices to be effective. You may think that, right, you know, you just, you know, cheat a little now, but then later you won't, right? Cheat a little on your girlfriend now, but you won't once you get married. Well, you probably know enough to know that that's not likely to happen, right? If you want to start being something tomorrow, you better start acting on it now because we're strange creatures where, believe it or not, when we perform an action enough, we end up slightly beginning to kind of imitate the birds because those actions form our characters such that then in the future, we tend to repeat those actions. So it's a strange phenomenon that human beings are the sort of beings that require habituation actions in order to become certain kinds of people. Again, God doesn't want us merely to follow rules. God wants us to become certain kinds of people, namely people like his son, people that can become sons and daughters of God who can learn to act regularly and reliably in joyful ways to do the good to others and to do the good for him. Now, this, of course, is a very complicated thing, right? This is a lifetime of work. John Henry Newman uh, taught, and I think Aquinas would certainly agree with him, right? Conversion is the work of a moment. Holiness is the work of a lifetime. So the cultivation of virtues, but that's what Aquinas puts at the heart of his ethics. Ethics isn't merely about doing the right thing. It's about becoming the sort of person who wants to do the right thing and who then has the courage to do it, right? It's one thing to kind of, um, you know, say that this is what I believe in, and that's fine. But, and in a lot of ways, we tend to spend a lot of time talking today about, say, values, right? But values are what I like. Values are what my opinions are. Virtues are what I can do. And I'll just give you a little example. I flew here today from Florida. I flew up to Atlanta. I flew on an airplane. I like flying airplanes. I value flying airplanes, right? I don't know how to fly an airplane. I don't have the virtue of flying an airplane. So my values are okay, but it really doesn't tell you that I'm going to be able to do it when things get hard. Virtues show these are the kind of skills that I have. So, right, it's good, so to speak, to be pro-life. Right? But do I have the virtue to be pro-life in difficult circumstances? Right? That's really where happiness lies. Okay, if those are about all the virtues, now, number seven, let's turn to the theological virtues. Now, the theological virtues are specifically faith, hope, and love. Aquinas is somewhat unique. Several of the medieval theologians during his time thought in a way that love is actually just the presence of the Holy Spirit in the person. So when we love, we're not almost loving with our own love. It's just Holy Spirit loving in us. It's Christ loving in us. Now, there's something beautiful about that and something poetic. But Aquinas thought, you know what? There's something more than that. Actually, when the Holy Spirit is present in us, loving in us, we also, because our created nature is elevated, our created nature is elevated such that we genuinely love ourselves. 
So he thought the theological virtues were genuine virtues, genuine perfections of the human nature. Uh, for those who are interested, if you ever get into like a philosophy or theology class, he came up with, really he was one of the first theologians in the, in the Middle Ages to come up with the notion of created grace, where grace that is really the presence of God, the presence of the Holy Spirit and the Son in us is a created phenomenon such that we as creatures are elevated but still remaining creatures. Grace isn't merely just kind of the Holy Spirit acting in us. I mean, it'd be nice if Jesus just took over my mind and my mouth from time to time. But in a way that I wouldn't, becoming, I wouldn't be perfected as a creature. So Aquinas thought that, no, grace is a created perfection in the person by which the person is fully actualized in his ability, right, ultimately to know and love God. Now, um, so the theological virtues then are the ways in which as a creature, I become capable of being united to God in the highest way possible in this life. I am able to receive God's communication and communicate back to him. So the three virtues, faith, hope, and love. Number one, faith. Aquinas says two things about faith that I think are really fascinating for us. Number one, as for us today, faith is an intellectual virtue. It means I believe God as true, even though I have to move my will to trust in him, right? I have to love him, so to speak, to believe in him. But faith, is, a lot of, I think today, people like to think of faith simply as a feeling or faith merely as an act of the will. But Aquinas thought, no, faith allows me to come to know truth. Faith, he says, is believing God is speaking truth to us. Aquinas will even say, faith believes the vision of him who sees, Jesus Christ perfectly sees the Father. And in faith, I believe Jesus Christ. So I don't see God the way Jesus does, but I believe what Jesus tells me. And in that sense, I share in his vision. He also then talks about hope. He says, hope gives us a kind of almost certain confidence because in hope, I trust that I will be able to attain the difficult good of heaven. My perfect happiness because hope relies on two unshakable things, God's omnipotence and God's mercy. I don't hope in my own strength. I hope in God's promise of mercy and strength. He also says, right, that doesn't mean we can presume upon it. We still have to, of course, repent our sins and we have to continue to follow him. But nonetheless, we trust in him to give us his happiness. Finally, he speaks about charity. He says, charity is Friendship with God. How is it friendship with God? He says, friendship requires a conversation and a communication among equals. Well, we're clearly not equal to God, so how could we have friendship with God? And he says this, there is a communication between man and God inasmuch as he communicates his happiness to us, so therefore there is genuine friendship. Ultimately, where does that communication come from? It's in the incarnation. It's in Christ. So uh, that's the, the end of that. Aquinas also, by the way, speaks additionally of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So he does think the Holy Spirit is present in us, giving us additional gifts in addition to the virtues. Okay. Number eight, the incarnation. Again, the incarnation is presented fundamentally in the language of communication. Aquinas says, why the incarnation? He says, fundamentally, why the incarnation? There's two things. Number one, he says, to save sinners. That's what the Bible says. 
Timothy teaches that, right? That um, God came into the world to save sinners. And we are sinners and we need to be saved. But number two is that it belongs in the, this is just quoting him, it belongs to the essence of goodness to communicate itself to others. I mean, just even think on a silly level, if you have great news you want to tell somebody, if you have a great secret, it's really hard to keep. Sometimes, of course, you should keep it. But in a certain sense, when we have good, we want to share it. Well, it belongs to the nature of goodness to communicate itself to others. So it belongs to the highest good to communicate itself to another in the highest manner possible. God is the highest good. So God wants to communicate himself to creatures in the highest mode possible. Now, in just creating the world and creating us, he's done one mode of communication. But the highest mode of communication is when he takes the human nature that you and I share, he unites it to the second person of his own trinity. In the incarnation, when the second person of the trinity, the word of God, assumes flesh, assumes us, the word became flesh in John 1, 14, God's perfection is communicated in the highest manner possible to human nature, to the created world. Because that human nature of Jesus Christ, right, is in the second person of the Trinity, right? When you say, who is Jesus Christ? It's the second person of God. Um, so this is really central, uh, that Christ is that perfect communication, which allows then Aquinas to say that the teaching of Christ or the doctrina Christi is the actual teaching of sacred doctrina. Right? When Christ speaks, he not only speaks with human words, he speaks with the divine logos. So as God is... Christ is both God and man. He is the perfect teacher who teaches himself to us and does so by illuminating us to receive his teaching by ascending the Holy Spirit. Interestingly, you may have asked, how come the creed doesn't mention any teachings of Jesus? The creed, even we say at Mass, there's no teachings of Jesus. Don't the teachings of Jesus matter? Well, in a way, all the teachings of Jesus are simply him teaching himself. I just want to make a little aside here. It's not only that Christ becomes incarnate, Christ dies on the cross. So not only is the incarnation Christ communicating God to us, it's also a communication in our suffering. It's a sharing in our suffering on the cross. If you've ever had a loved one suffer or a friend suffer, one of the deepest things you want is to be able to somehow communicate with them. And yet the hardest thing in that state of Pain and suffering, often you can't. So what does God do? We're in a state of pain and suffering, death and despair. He wants to communicate. He tries to teach us his law. He tries to teach us his covenants. But what does he do? He enters into our suffering so that he can communicate completely to us. He can communicate his love to us so that when we look at the cross, we see the love of Jesus Christ. When we see Jesus Christ on the cross, Jesus Christ expresses God's love for us and perfectly, right, makes satisfaction for all of our sins so that in his resurrection, we not only have the forgiveness of sins, but the promise of eternal life. Sorry. So God communicates not only himself, but he communicates himself to us in our suffering, and he communicates himself to us in our suffering with the message of hope and salvation. We know that now we never suffer alone, or at least we, if we do, it's only because we are choosing to reject God's sharing and communication in our suffering. 
It's an interesting line, by the way, from Romans 8 that you may have wondered about at some point where Paul says, like, when we are, he says that the Holy Spirit prays for us in our sufferings when our groaning is too much for us to pray. That's because right now we, God has entered into our cross. And what did Christ do on the cross? Well, he said a lot of words, but he also just groaned, right? And that, in a way, is his entering into our suffering. So, number nine, the sacraments. Aquinas, towards the end of the Summa, now we're getting all the way through the Summa, we're now in the third part, the end of the third part, he talks about the sacraments. Fundamentally, what are the sacraments? They are the ongoing communication of God's goodness to us through the incarnation, now present to us through the sacraments of the church. He will say this, Christ's passion is a sufficient cause of salvation. Nonetheless, Christ's passion is applied to us, communicated to us through the sacraments. He says this, of course, is from Paul and Romans. All who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. He will say again, the sacraments of the new law cause grace because they are instituted by God to be employed for the purpose of causing grace. Again, communicating grace to us. He says, of course, that the Eucharist is actually God wanting to remain with us as friends want to remain with friends. So God can remain with us in conversation, in communication. So much so, Aquinas will say that the Eucharist is called communion. And, well, wait for it. Because we communicate with God through it, because in it we partake his flesh and his Godhead, and because we communicate and are united to one another. Finally, number 10, heaven. We've gone all the way around from God to the creation of the world, to the redemption of the world, and now we are returning to God in heaven. This is the end of the Summa. By the way, this final part, Aquinas died and didn't get to finish, so his, um, some of his uh, students pulled together his earlier writings from the commentary on the sentences and finished his section on heaven. Um, but the fundamental point is heaven is nothing other than the full reception of God's communication to us. Aquinas will describe it as the light of glory that makes us possible to know God, even though we are creatures, because we come to know God with God's own light. We come to know God with God's own love. We come to know, love God, know God with God's own knowledge and love God with God's own love, right? And in a way, right, what is hell but simply the rejection of that? It's simply that God loves creatures so much that he gives us the dignity of being real creatures. This is not a dream. Right? You're real. The actions you make are real. The decisions you make are real. God will not, so to speak, force anyone into heaven against his will. And that's the reality. That's the goodness, so to speak. It doesn't mean that, right, yes, Christ has died for all and Christ offers his mercy to all, but Christ will not force you into heaven. Your real choices, the real loves and hatreds you have, give you the freedom with God's grace to form your soul in a certain way. And all heaven is, is really just the eventual outworking of that. If we cooperate with grace, we respond to grace, we are sorry for our sins, then heaven is that eternal moment in which we can love God with God's own love, know God with God's own knowledge. We have the very light of glory in us revealing him, right? 
Uh, and that becomes uh, the heart of that aspect, right? In closing, I wanted you just to take a little time and think a little bit about this aspect of the Summa. Yeah. Think fundamentally of the way in which the Summa is really just, right, God's story. What's a story but a communication? What do we communicate? We communicate stories. It's God's love story. The Summa is God's love story of his love in which he creates us and his love in which he redeems us. Aquinas actually has a curious line when he says everything that God makes and everything God doesn't make, God knows. Because God knows, well, everything because he's God. But everything that he makes has a unique kind of knowledge. It has a knowledge of approbation, a knowledge of approval, a knowledge in a way of willing, right? That everything that exists, that includes me, that includes you, exists because God wills and loves us into being. God has a loving knowledge of us. So there's this love story that Aquinas helps us to enter into more deeply. Because all of the Summa is about God's communication of himself to creatures, God's communication to himself in us insofar as we grow in happiness, God's communication to himself to us as we grow in happiness through the incarnation of Jesus Christ, his son, through the ongoing communication of Jesus Christ's communication in the sacraments, and then ultimately our hope that we will attain that full return and be able to reflect God's love story in our own love of God and one another. So I encourage you to continue to try to get to know the love of Christ that passes all understanding by getting to know one of the people that loved Jesus Christ so much that he could say, right, nothing but you, Lord. Um, I suggest, by the way, reading some good books about Aquinas. <laughs> Um, George, as I mentioned, G.K. Chesterton wrote a wonderful book, The Dumb Ox. Joseph Pieper wrote a great book, The Guide to St. Thomas Aquinas. Father Thomas Joseph White of uh, the Thomistic Institute uh, wrote a new book, I think, called uh, The Light of Christ. It's not really an introduction to Aquinas, but it's an introduction to Thomistic theology. Uh, I brought a couple copies of the book that I co-authored with Matthew Levering. We're going to be giving one away. If you want to buy one, you can buy one for $20. Just as a disclaimer, I want to make it clear that I actually just bought them on Amazon for $25, so I'm actually selling them at a loss. I'm not really making any money here. Um, but they just might be fun if you want to continue to keep learning and thinking about this. Um, but most importantly, with Aquinas, I invite you to come to know the love of Jesus Christ and be filled with the fullness of God. I wanted to close then. There's a famous passage from John 14, 6, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Aquinas, doing his full-time job as a professor of sacred page, of the sacred page, um, commented on all of John. So we have his commentary on John 14, 6. And he says this to each of us, right? On John 14, 6, if then you ask which way to go, take Christ, for he is the way. If you ask where to go, cling to Christ, for he is the truth, which we desire to reach. If you ask where to remain, remain in Christ because he is the light.